Amen. Thank you, uh, Brooke, for those announcements and that, and for praying for me and for all of us this morning. Good morning, Park uh, community. My name is Mike, uh, and I'm privileged to be here this morning to open God's word. It is a responsibility, but a privilege that we have this time together as a church. I am very sad that the pews are empty. The building's not empty. Uh, Megan and Katie and Kyle are here um, working and serving the Lord uh, along with us, and Clint's in the house. Uh, we've been chilling to Josh Garrels and other singers here, right? It's been sweet, but we really miss um, all of you. Um, it's uh, sad for us to not be able to be together in person. Um, my prayer is that each of you will be touched by God. Those of you that are feeling sick, that God would touch you, your family, uh, this day. Um, we're going to be looking at a depressing book, actually, today, Ecclesiastes. You might want to make your way there to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's after Psalms and Proverbs, uh, just a little bit to the right of center in your Bible. Um, and we're going to be in a lot of places in the scripture today, so um, I, I recommend that you have a Bible handy. But before we open up Ecclesiastes, I, uh, I do have an announcement, um, and it's a, it's a good one. Uh, we officially have a candidate for our discipleship pastor position, and we are super excited about Kyle. Yes, I hear the collective scream uh, from all of you. Uh, Kyle and uh, Stacy, his wife, um, have gone through the process. Uh, God put together an amazing team uh, of people to, uh, to search for a discipleship pastor. Uh, we were led by Ross Eggers. His wife, Jen, was helping. Uh, Anna Shewitt, uh, part of the team. Uh, Danielle DeMoret, uh, also integral part of the team. Uh, Pastor Andrew and Ben and myself as an elder, we were uh, all together working and we interviewed and looked at many, many candidates. It was a long process and, uh, and uh, the guy that rose to the top was Kyle. He has uh, many years of experience. He's not as old as me, but he has a lot of years of experience. Uh, he is a discipler. He is a trainer. He's, He's uh, led teams, developed teams over the years uh, that would work with youth. He's worked mostly, mostly with youth, uh, but also with young adults. And we feel like uh, he's just a great, great candidate. Uh, he's going to be uh, here with CSC the weekend of January 21st to 23rd for a candidating weekend. So we'll have more details on that later. But uh, Kyle is uh, everything that we've heard and in, in the interviews, he is a warm, uh, friendly, godly um, man. Uh, he just loves Jesus. He loves people and he loves to disciple people. We're really excited about Kyle and a chance for you to get to, to meet him. So there's more coming on that, but I just wanted to announce that uh, this morning. So as we come to Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, Pastor Andrew and I, as we've been reading this and studying it uh, in these last weeks, we, are, we agree that it is, it's really a downer. It's, um, and honestly, both of us were kind of like, oh man, it is, it is heavy, particularly this season that we're in with COVID and all the other messes in the world. Uh, it's kind of a downer of a book, but I really believe that as we look at this through the eyes of the whole Bible, as we look at this through the eyes of the New Testament, of the New Covenant in Christ, uh, I believe that we're all going to walk away today incredibly encouraged uh, from the conclusion of this book and how we look at that together as Christians. And that's our goal this morning as we, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to do four things uh, with us today. I want us to just do a quick review of the book uh, in this two-week series last week. Andrew uh, walked us through the, the book of Ecclesiastes just to get a feel for this sense of vanity, of meaninglessness that the author talks about, to get a feel for that. And then uh, I want to do that um, uh, fairly quickly. Um, and then I want to spend the last half of our time really looking at how do we look at the conclusion of this book in light of the New Testament, in light of the, our Christian perspective. And so we begin in the, the beginning of the book, 
uh, with these words. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. I agree with Andrew. I believe it's probably Solomon, but he doesn't give his name here. The more I study it, and you'll even see it in some of the texts that we read here. Uh, he was a very wise uh, man, the, most, the wisest man of his age, incredibly wealthy king, son of David, uh, lived in Jerusalem. And so um, many, many things point to that. But I'll call him probably the preacher today uh, because that's what he calls himself um, as he writes this incredible uh, poem, beautiful, beautiful uh, poetry, and yet a really depressing kind of message and poetry. He begins with these words, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I, lo I love the New Living Translation of, the, of this phrase, meaningless, meaningless, all is vanity meaningless. The idea here of vanity is literally of a breath, a mere breath. <sighs> Something that just <sighs> comes and goes. You can't grab it. As we, as we walk through the book, we see that seven times he mentions, the author mentions, that, that life is like a breath. It's like vanity of vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. You can't hold on to it. You can't understand it. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. And that's how he begins the book. And that is the theme as he walks through his reflections on life. Verse, verse 3, what does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? He talks a lot about this toil, this struggle, this work that, of life under the sun. And so Andrew last week helped us see this message of what is life? under the sun. This week we're going to focus on life with God or life with the sun, S-O-N. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Life is tiring. There's no satisfaction in life. What we see and what we hear, it's meaningless, it's empty. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Day after day, the same toil, the same troubles, the same trials, over and over. Meaningless. This is his conclusion. And as he walks through the book, over and over he says, vanity, vanity, a striving after the wind. Look at verse 12 to 14. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. He says, I've looked at everything. I've tried everything. I've searched in this life under the sun. And I've come to the conclusion that it is like striving after the wind. Last week, last week uh, Andrew walked us through these first few chapters particularly and uh, when he came here to the end of chapter 1 and through chapter 2, he said that uh, the author tells us about his search for meaning through wisdom, his search through meaning through pleasure, laughter, and, and his, his search for meaning through hard work or productivity. And I thought that was brilliant. And I'll just, as I do an overview, I just, I'll, I'll mention that here. Uh, so in verse 16 uh, and later in, the, in, this, in chapter 2, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. 
I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation or worry or turmoil. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's a sad reality. The philosophers of the world are, are oftentimes the saddest, the most sullen people in the world. Striving to understand everything is tiring. It's exhausting. It's futile. And it seems like the more we seek to understand things, the more we realize that we don't understand it. We just get sad. You've seen it. You've probably experienced it, and I have. Because I've just, particularly as a young person, just wanted to understand everything. And the more I searched, the more hollow I felt. Wisdom, seeking wisdom, is not the end all. And then he sought after pleasure. Chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he sought after earthly pleasure through things and through experiences. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He had pools. He had many slaves, great possessions, silver, gold, treasures of kings and provinces, singers, many concubines. He didn't hold back at all. He sought pleasure. Maybe through pleasure I will find meaning in life but it was to no avail. About a little over 40 years ago, I met a man, I'm going to call him Donald, because uh, his story is terrible. Uh, Donald's dream in life was to make a million dollars before he was 40 years old. That was his goal. And back then, a million dollars was a lot of money to reach to make a million dollars or have a million dollars after, after, by 40 was very rare. And so he sought after that. And he did it. He made it. He achieved his goal. goal. In the process, Donald uh, lost his wife. She, uh, she ended up divorcing him. He, he was an absent husband. And uh, his son became a drug addict, ended up in jail, and eventually committed suicide. It's a terrible story, but it's a story that we see, that people that seek pleasure in worldly things, that just seek money and things and possessions, the more they have, the more they have to care for, the more worries they have in life, and they're miserable. These things in life, some of them can be good, but they do not bring us meaning in life. And so he ends once again, Behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Then he talks about hard work, productivity. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He talks a lot about death in this book and how you can strive for, for meaning in life, but all of a sudden you can die. And you can work and work and work and accumulate many, many things, and all of a sudden you die and leave it to somebody and that person didn't, didn't, didn't do anything. He says that too is meaningless and striving after the wind. My, uh, my high school yearbook, they, they had a thing, it was a few years ago, they, uh, they had a thing at the end where everybody wrote out what, their, what clubs and sports and music things that they were part of, and then, uh, and then they had a thing, what are you going to do in the future? And uh, one of my clever uh, classmates said, what I'm going to do in my future is pay taxes, and die. 
I never forgot that. It was clever, but there's a sad reality to it. So many people, they just work and live their life and strive to make money and have this life under the sun with their stuff, and that's it. And their life is hollow. Their life is meaningless. As we move to the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, there's a shift in the book from the search, his, the preacher's search for meaning to just reflection on life, on things that are good, things that are bad. And I'm not going to walk through all of this, but I really want us to look at chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 is very uh, famous. Is it, it's the... Uh, for everything there is a season, the chapter begins, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. This very, very famous and highly quoted text. Right after that, in verse 9, we have a, a, some hints of, that's leading the preacher to the, his conclusion at the end of the book. Uh, the things that we're going to look at uh, this morning he gives hints. And as he moves through the rest of the books, he's giving reflections on life and then hints of his conclusion ahead. So let's look at this paragraph, chapter 3, verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. So as he goes, he talks about the beauty of life. And I love this phrase. It's a powerful phrase. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. And so as he works through the book, he begins to reflect on eternal things, on things that will matter, on spiritual things. What's so sad is he follows this with, yet, so... So, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God's placed eternity in, his, in man's heart, but the preacher says, but I can't understand it. I can't grab onto it. It's too big for me, and it frustrates me. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. He talks a lot about joy and finding joy in this life. And here he talks about doing good, and that's part of how he will end the book. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He talks about this eating and drinking and being merry, having joy in your heart. Sometimes he talks about it like this is a gift from God, and other times like it's futile. It doesn't bring us complete meaning. And I like how he treats that because there is a beauty in having a meal with friends of, of eating and drinking together in a healthy way and just having, just being with people. It's a beautiful thing. If God gives us days to do that, that's good. And he mentions many other things like that. And then he, con then he considers, then he says this, I perceive, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Another mention of eternity. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. He brings up this idea of fear, but also the sovereignty of God. God is in control. He is great. He is beyond us, and we must Fear him. Lastly, I just want to skip down uh, to uh, verse 17, just a few verses ahead. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. He comes back to this idea of there's a time for everything, and one of those things is there is a time for judgment, and judgment is coming. And so we see these themes in the book, and the, this is how he concludes the book. Let's go to the end of Ecclesiastes. 
I wish I could go through the whole book with you, but uh, uh, we really need to look at, at how we understand this from a Christian perspective. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is his conclusion. What I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through that uh, together, to look at the con this conclusion, reflect on how do we understand this, this book and this conclusion from a, from a Christian perspective and how do we respond. And how are we going to do that? I want to look at those five things. I want to look at meaning. I want to look at the fear of God. I want to look at keeping his commandments. What do we do as Christians with this idea of obedience? I want us to look at duty, and I want us to look at the idea of judgment. Maybe you can go back a slide and look at those five things I have. On. Yeah, there, there we go. The meaning of life, the fear of God, keeping of his commandments, duty, and judgment. Uh, meaning of life, we're going to talk about all the way through this, these these next uh, 10, 15 minutes together. I'd like us to begin looking at the meaning of life in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is one of my, uh, one of my favorite chapters, actually, in the entire Bible. It talks about us dying with Christ and living with Christ. It talks about us being a new person, that when we come to Christ, God takes away that old man, the old man dies, and the new man comes, the new person. All of us, men and women, young people who know Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we become a new person. He says, you, you used to be a liar, and now you tell the truth. You used to steal, and now you, now you work hard. You used to be full of, uh, of sexual sin, but now you are pure. You used to be angry, but but now you forgive. And he walks through what that old man was like and what the new man was like. And when we come to, to, uh, to verse 12 of, of Colossians 3, he says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He goes on to talk about forgiveness and, above all, love. I want us to start with our, this idea of meaning by looking at our identity. There's many things that the Bible says about our identity. Who we are in Christ. When, when there was a shift from the Old Covenant, the, the Old Testament to the New Testament, it was a radical shift. It begins, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, begins with the coming of Jesus. And everything changed with the coming of Jesus. He came, he taught, he died for us. He rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And then on Pentecost, he gave us the Holy Spirit and everything changed. What we see in the Old Testament is good. It is good, it is part of the story, but it is not the whole story. This conclusion by the preacher is a good one. It's good, it's a good old covenant, good old testament message, it really is. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. This is what they lived, the duty of keeping commands, of fearing God, of, of judgment, it's a good message, but you know what? I looked at this, and you know what I thought of? I thought, man, that's kind of like, eat your peas, because they're good for you. I don't know how you feel about peas, but I'm not a fan of peas. But as a kid, you know, it's like, eat your peas, because they're good for you. That, it kind of feels like that to me. It's like, I've tried all these things to find meaning, but in the end, eat your peas, they're good for you. Fear God, keep his commandments. It's your duty, right? 
And God will bring, because God's going to judge. Friends, there's more to the story. There's a shift. When Jesus came, everything changed. We still see these themes, except for the duty part. We still see these themes in the New Testament. But they're different. They're nuanced. We have meaning. We have meaning in life. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are in Christ? There's so much to this. One, one thing Paul mentions is that we are vapor, which is interesting with this book. We are small. Compared to God, we are, we're like nothing, right? We are so small. We are, our lives are short. But as these small beings with no significance without God, we have been chosen. We are God's people. We have been chosen. Isn't that something? You were chosen by God. I was chosen, not because of our merit, not because of anything we did. God just decided to choose us. We are holy. When God looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of Christ and his work on the cross. On his resurrection, we are holy. What does that mean? Throughout the Bible, and this is one of the main reasons I picked this verse, because this idea of holiness is that God purifies things so that they can be useful. In the temple, they purified all the instruments that they used in worship, all of the, the altar and everything. They purified it to use it in, as an act of worship. God makes us holy so that we can honor him, so that we can exalt him, so that we can glorify him, so that we can be useful to him. God has declared us holy. Now, he knows we, that we mess up. He sees our sin, but when he looks at us, he sees us as holy because of Christ. It's incredible. And it is so sweet to hear him say that we are dearly loved. Dearly loved. God loves us. Yes, he knows how messed up we are, but he has chosen us. He has made us holy, and he loves us. And as chosen, holy, and dearly loved people, he says, I have a wardrobe of things for you to wear of actions for you to, to wear, expressions for you to wear. How do we express ourselves in our spiritual clothing? With compassion, with kindness, with gentleness, with patience, with forgiveness, with love. This come, is an expression that comes out of our identity in Christ. I love this. It's important. I'm not going to talk about all of our identity today. You can Google it and, and find amazing things about our identity in Christ. But we are adopted sons and daughters of God. We are new creatures that are chosen, holy, and loved. To me, this brings great meaning because I have been chosen. I am holy, useful to God, and dearly Loved. We'll keep talking about meaning as we go. Next, we want, I want us to talk about fear. The preacher says, fear God and keep his commandments. Is this, a, is this a New Testament concept as well? It truly is. Uh, 1 Peter 2.17, Peter says it very clearly. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God honor the emperor. The fact that we are small, and that God is great, that he is the creator, that he is sovereign, that he is in control, and that we should have awe and respect and honor him and live for his glory. This is true always. He is always great, and we are always nothing without him. This is true. We must live with this kind of fear. 
But this kind of fear is not a fear like being afraid of him. In the New Testament, it's nuanced. And we're going to see that a little bit more when we come to 1 John chapter 4. But yes, we continue to fear God. Jesus talked about it. The apostles talked about it. The New Testament authors talked about it. So yes, we fear God. Keeping his commandments. Is obedience still important in the New Testament? You bet it is. Obedience is really important. I'd like you to uh, keep something in uh, Ecclesiastes. You might need to refer to it again. But uh, I'd like you to go to John with me. John chapter 15. This is one of the most known and important uh, texts probably in the New Testament. Um, It is so, so rich. I'd like to read it all, but I don't have time to read it all. But I want to read some uh, important parts about this uh, passage where, where Jesus talks about abiding in him. We have the word abide here nine, nine times. Six times it talks about us abiding in him. One time it has abiding in his word, and two times it has abiding in his love. And of course, those things are all tied together. We are called to abide in him. But, but it's not only that that we see. Look at verse 4. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Those four words are also very significant. And I in you. And we're going to see that in some of the other texts we look at uh, this morning. That in Christ, we we are in him, in Christ, and he is in us. Christ in me, the hope of glory, the Apostle Paul said. I abide in him, he abides in me. Paul talks about this as being united with Christ, united in his death and in his resurrection. This is a beautiful thing. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Notice that by abiding in him, we bear fruit. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. All we can do is abide in him and let him bear fruit through us. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As we abide in Christ, it glorifies God the Father. We bear much fruit and it glorifies God the Father. Our abiding and our obedience brings glory to God. Throughout history, the church has declared that the the goal of mankind is to glorify God. Jesus said, if you want to glorify God, Abide in him. Abide in Christ. Let him abide in you. And you will bear fruit. You will will obey his commands. And this will glorify God. Talk about meaning in life. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Once again, God, Jesus loves us. Abide in my love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abiding in Christ will help us to bear fruit which will glorify God and this will bring us joy. Great joy, full joy. 
There is so much meaning in being a follower of Jesus. We are able to be loved by him. We are able to bear fruit for him as we abide in him. We are able to glorify the Father and we are full of joy. Wow. It's amazing. What a gift from God. Keeping his commandments is important. The, one of the things we, we often say is, it doesn't really matter what you do, God will still love you. And there's a sense in which that is true. But that phrase in and of itself, it doesn't matter what you do, is not a biblical phrase. What we do matters. Even more importantly, how we do what we do matters in the sense that as we abide in him, as we live in dependence on him, we live in intimacy with, with Christ, he will do his work through us. This is the natural and supernatural work of Christ in us. So yes, what we do matters. Keeping his commandments is what matters. What's interesting, Jesus uh, says here, it doesn't say here, keep the law. He says, keep his commandments. And so we keep the, the commandments of the Bible, but at the core of that, Jesus taught, was to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is at the core of that. And we see this in 1 John as we shift to the idea of duty, First uh, John is towards the back of the Bible, not super far from, from Revelation. Duty. Is, is our Christian life a life of duty? It is not a life of duty. We, it's not a have-to kind of relationship that we have with God. That is the law. That's an old covenant kind of motivation. First um, John chapter 4. I absolutely love this, this chapter. I'd like to begin in uh, verse 18. There is no fear in love. So yes, we have fear. We have a holy awe and reverence, but we're not afraid of God. And he goes on to explain it. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, as we are loved by God, and we love God, and we allow him to work through us, our motivations are Christ himself. It is the love of Christ that compels us, Paul, Paul taught. We're not motivated by fear. We're not motivated by punishment. We're not afraid of God in that, in that sense. We live with a holy reverence, a holy awe, but not with being afraid. We love, verse 19, because he first loved us. There's our motivation. God's love is our motivation. Beautiful. Chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And so we express our love for God by keeping his commandments, by doing the things that he has given us. For everyone, uh, sorry, uh, verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Wow, it's not a duty, it's not a burden for us to keep the commandments of God because his commandments are beautiful and he has loved us and we are compelled by his love. We love because he first loves us. We love and we keep the commandments not out of duty, 
but out of love for God and a love of God that flows through us. Lastly, we look at judgment. Judgment. Is judgment a new covenant, a New Testament idea as well? You bet it is. Judgment flows all the way through the Bible from the beginning until the very end of the book to Revelation chapter 19. Judgment is coming. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus talks about it. Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read the context. I have verse uh, 27 in front of you. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Christian life is a life of surrender. It is abiding in Christ and constantly surrendering to him. And that's how we begin our life. And that's how we have life, he says. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It is a life of surrender. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one, each person, according to what he has done. This is a quote from, from Psalm 62, the last verse of Psalm 62, that that the preacher quotes in, in uh, Ecclesiastes 12. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And it is quoted at least 10 times in the New Testament. Yes, there is a judgment that is coming. We're going to talk more about this when we get into uh, uh, 1 Corinthians because uh, Paul talks about this specifically in, in Corinthians. But I will say this, the way I understand this, is that we are, not, we are not saved, absolutely we are not saved by our works. We, the deeds that we do on, on this word, we are saved by faith and faith alone in Christ, right? We repent, we turn away from trusting ourselves, we turn away from our sins, we place our faith in Jesus. Now we are new creatures in him and out of that, we will bear fruit. Real faith bears fruit. As we abide in Christ, he does his work. All the things that we've been talking about in the final judgment, when God looks at us and looks at everyone else, he will look and see, is there fruit? By their fruit, you will know them, Jesus said. And so based on that, he sees our faith. Will he find faith, faith on earth, Jesus asked. And so he will see our faith through the works that we perform. Those of us who have followed him, he will reward us for our deeds. And those that have not placed their faith in Christ, they will be cast into outer darkness and will be punished. They will be judged forever. It's a terrible and scary reality, but it is true. Judgment is something that happens through the entire scriptures, and we must remember this. This is very significant. God has placed eternity in our hearts, the preacher says, and we must remember eternity. The people that we see day in and day out are people that need to know Jesus because judgment is coming. I'd like to end with uh, a verse from 2 Corinthians 20 and a quick story. The last piece on our identity in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5:20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You want meaning in life? 
Understand that you are God's ambassador. You are Christ's ambassador to the world. As we go into a coffee shop, we are Christ's representative. As we, as we meet with our colleagues on Zoom or in, in the office or wherever it is, we are Christ's representatives. We are his ambassadors. And he is working through us. He's making his appeal through us to the people of the world. He's chosen us to represent him here in this world. We are his ambassadors. I want to end by telling you the story of one of my favorite ambassadors. Uh, is my grandfather, Chester. Uh, Chester um, was 14 years old when his father passed away. And he was the oldest child. Uh, Chester, my grandpa Chester was a great athlete. Um, when uh, uh, he was in high school, he beat the fastest sprinter in the, uh, in the school in a, in a foot race, um, and he did it with his street clothes on. But he couldn't participate in track. He couldn't participate in other sports and other things because uh, he had to go to work when he was 14 years old. So he would go to school in the day, and he would go right from school to the creamery. He was, uh, uh, worked in a creamery. They made butter. He was always a champion of butter. Uh, and he loved butter. All the world was eating margarine, and he was eating butter and telling everybody they should be eating butter. He was way ahead of his time. Uh, but Chester worked in that creamy, creamery for around 60 years of his life. Um, he was really smart. He was a very wise man, but he was an ambassador for Christ. He, uh, he rode the bus a lot, and uh, at his funeral, I learned I was, a, I was fairly young. I was a teenager when he died. And, uh, but I remember them talking about him. As he would ride the bus, he would just strike up conversations with people, got to know the people on the, on the bus routes that he was on, and he would share Christ. And he led many people to Jesus there and in many other places. For years uh, after his passing, I would introduce myself. Um, uh, people say, what's your name? I'm Mike Gunderson. And, and they would, every once in a while, people would say, are you Chester Gunderson's grandson? And I would say, yes. And they would say, some, always said something very kind about him. Chester changed my life. Or Ch Chester was, was my mentor. Or Chester discipled me. Or Chester led me to Jesus, and uh, he had a he was a he was a he, although he was smart and wise he didn't have a college education, but he was an ambassador for Christ, and I've always wanted to be like him, in that sense. This too gives us meaning. Quickly, how do we respond? First of all. Know who you are and walk in your identity in Christ. Know who you are. Get to know, study your Bible and get to know who you are and walk in your identity. Know that you are loved and live that love out. Let that love compel you to love others. Number two, live as Christ's ambassador. Wherever you go, wherever you are with your family and outside of your home, you are Christ's ambassador. Represent him well. And lastly, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Walk with him. Listen to him. Abide in his word. Let his love abide in you. Spend time in the word. Spend time praying. Spend time with him. Talk with him as you go through your day. Abide in Christ. Let him live his life through you and under the power of the Holy Spirit. God has put in my heart, I don't, this doesn't always happen to me, but a, a particular verse has been pulsating in my heart in these last weeks, and I believe I will carry it through this year, and it is this phrase, walk by faith and not by sight, the words of the Apostle Paul. Walk by faith 
and not by sight. This is my desire. I want to walk in faith. I want to walk in dependence in Christ. May God allow us to have life and meaning and joy as we abide in him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to read this book, Ecclesiastes, and to reflect on the message of the preacher to his people in his time. Uh, We thank you today, Lord, that we live after the coming of Christ, after his resurrection, after his ascension, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, after the formation of your of your new, of the new testament we are so privileged to be able to live this life in Christ to live this life under the power of Christ and under the power of the holy spirit what a gift thank you for the meaning that you've given us that we don't have to live hollow lives but that we can live lives that are full of you and your presence that we can live as your ambassadors for Christ in our day-to-day lives, and that above all, you've given us the means and your presence to glorify you, Father. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith, to walk with you, to abide in your Son day by day, moment after moment. We want to grow in this, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the life that we have in Christ. We pray this together in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, that's all we have this day. May God give you strength this day. May God help you with whatever you're dealing with right now. And may you walk with him at all times. In Jesus' name, amen.